Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palanker. MediaPath has been deemed the greatest barometer of current culture since the Met Gala. Mm-hmm. And some people only listen to us wearing very expensive fashions. On each episode, we offer you suggestions on great viewing or listening, recent releases, even old releases, only recently rediscovered by us. We use these interesting contents to lead into our spectacular guests. And we have a couple today. This time we have Herbie J. Pilato, an author of, he says, somewhere between 16 and 20 books, he's not sure, on class... On classic television. Yeah, he's writing one right now. And he had a talk show host. One of the titles he's most proud of is he's a retired NBC page. It's like being a Marine. You're never not an NBC page. You just become inactive as an NBC page. (laughs) And I knew Herbie back when he was an active NBC page. We're going to talk to Herbie about his latest book called Retroactive Television, an in-depth retrospective on classic TV's social circuitry. The fantastic forward in this book was written by the talented Eric Scott. Eric, as you know, was Ben Walton on The Waltons, one of America's most iconic television series. And for today, Media Path has become Walton Mountain because oh Ben is with us right here in the studio. That'll be an amazing conversation. But first, Wheezy, I have a review. Oh. And there are so few, I thought I'd I would love to hear it. Thank you. Give you this one right now. This is mm-hmm. very this is hot off the presses. Yeah. The title of the review is Inspiring Listeners with Timely Topics and Great Hosts. I love this podcast. Fritz and Louise are top talent that bring their A-game to every episode. Their guest list is incredible, and there's always a lesson to be learned. I always find myself inspired and uplifted and often giggling at these real conversations so refreshing, says Jeanette Bernstein. God love you, Jeanette, and everything you stand for. It sounds like you just reviewed The Waltons. No. There's always a lesson. <laughs> wow. Inspiring. Yep. All right. What do you got, Weez? Oh, Fritz, I'm assuming that the iconic Are You There Got It To Me, Margaret, was never on your reading list. Is that correct? Mm, no. Okay. I know it's famous. I know so, it's important in American female tween culture, but I, I've never read one. So you may be wondering, who is this Margaret and why is she questioning the presence of God? Well, Margaret Simon is almost 12 when she moves to the New Jersey suburbs with her parents and only child. She eagerly joins a secret club of girls who begin sharing notes on boys and bras and periods. Concerned that she is not measuring up, Margaret begins a conversation with God within which she addresses her compounding concerns. This frank and touching middle grade book was first published in 1970, and it immediately charted on both bestseller and banned book lists. And this month, at long last, just as the banned book craze is once again cresting, are you there, God? It's Me, Margaret, is a movie. The film arrives more than half a century after the book, much longer than Margaret waited for her period. Here, we get to see our childhood decors and wardrobe spring back to life with a cast that includes Rachel McAdams as Margaret's mom, Benny Softy as her dad, Kathy Bates as her grandmother, and Abby Ryder Forston as Margaret. She is exquisitely expressive. Each of the primary female characters in the film, Margaret, her mother, and her grandmother, are navigating new chapters and finding purpose and identity and meeting with the support of one another. Throughout the decades, Judy Bloom's books have boldly discussed the once taboo teen topics of sexuality, gender dynamics, religious choices, and adolescent confusion. Her words have served as welcome reassurance to fearful children working their way through puberty. The concept of a period can be terrifying to a young girl. No one speaks about the specifics out loud. It's all whispered. 
I first became aware as a tiny kid with three equally young siblings in a moment when my overwhelmed mother was dashing around the house partially clothed in an effort to wrangle us into momentary safety. I noticed that she had hurriedly stuffed some toilet paper into her crotch. She was bleeding from there and I was scared. She told me not to worry and it would eventually happen to me. I'm sorry, what? Uh, That's not comforting. Unlike Margaret, I was in no hurry for this eventuality. Judy's books were a gift as she calmly explained what was happening to our bodies in a way that helped us feel less isolated and more a part of the natural cycle of life. And Margaret is struggling with more than just the physical aspects of becoming her grown-up self. She is also seeking spiritual answers in her communications with God. Her mother is Christian. Her father is Jewish. They have encouraged her to choose her own faith. It's a daunting expectation. This aspect of the book alone fueled the Christian right to ban it. They demand absolute certainty when it comes to beliefs. No questions, just blind faith. Judy Bloom says that things are worse now than when the book was first targeted by the right-wing religious groups. Now, all three branches of government are involved in curtailing our right to wonder and ask and read and learn. And I have even more exciting Judy Bloom news for you, Fritz, because I know she is... Hold on. Hello? It's spam risk. That was for me. (laughs) (laughs) So Fritz, Judy Bloom has a new documentary on Prime, and it's called Judy Bloom Forever. What is Judy Bloom really like? She is exactly as you always hoped. Her life, her history, her opinions, her motivations, inspirations, and personality are documented here in a Ron Howard, Brian Grazer film, which you'll find on Prime. How did this kind, thoughtful, diminutive, almost shy woman change the way young girls awaken into their grown-up selves? She pushed back against the traditional female expectations of her young adult era in a way which best suited her personality. She began quietly writing. In Judy Bloom Forever, you'll meet her kids, her husband, her friends, and most astoundingly, two young ladies with whom Judy has been corresponding since they began writing to her as children. When Judy's words first met the eyes of kids, the questions she answered inspired more questions, and so they wrote. Every child's perspective and experiences are different. They all have questions, and I would like to encourage you to be the person who answers the questions of the children in your life. Start by asking them questions. Tell them about your childhood. That's how you open up pathways of safe communication. There is a kid right now who needs your experience, understanding, and wisdom. Judy Bloom Forever is on Prime. Are you there, God? It's me. Margaret is in theaters streaming soon. I'm not sure where, but we'll, we'll let you know. And the book, of course, is everywhere. Fritz? I think the book banning is going to come back to bite these people in the rear end in the end. It's mm-hmm. just awful. It, it's, it's regressing back into the 1800s, you know? And it's imagining that they can't find the book online. No, it's just bad. Well, you, can, you can no longer contain information. That's why they're becoming increasingly desperate to try. So, so sad. Well, I, I'm going to do a, a documentary about rock and roll. This is streaming on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It's Little Richard. And the title is I Am Everything. I'm a huge fan of music documentaries. This one is about the innovator, the emancipator, (laughs) the originator, the architect of rock and roll, Little Richard, Richard Penniman. This film is advertised as the black queer origins of rock and roll. Little Richard is one of the most copied early artists in rock and roll. His songs have been covered by many, many artists. Some would call it appropriation. We had this discussion on the air with Pat Boone. He would not call it appropriation. He said that Pat Boone made him rich because Pat Boone introduced other people, particularly white people, to his music. This is about a gifted yet very conflicted star. 
star. He bounced back and forth between God and sex and rock and roll, between gay sex and straight sex, between a gay identity and a straight identity, between gospel and what was leveled the, labeled the devil's music, rock and roll. He was discovered as a gifted singer by the iconic blues shouter, Sister Rosetta Tharp. She put him on stage at one of her shows, and the rest is history. Richard ended up singing in a slightly different type of venue, starting in drag shows in his hometown of Macon, Georgia, and later on the Chitlin circuit, he sang in drag as Princess Lavon. After he recorded and got famous, he was recognized as the Black Liberace. And this, to me, was the most interesting part of this whole film. The fact that his character was feminine made white people more comfortable with him because he did not fill that subliminal stereotype of the handsome, muscular black man who was out to convert white women away from black women. And it made him more comfortable. Away from white men. uh, uh, Yeah, right. Or or both. Uh, (laughs) In other words, he wasn't He wasn't a threat to white men. Thank you. (laughs) Some of the lyrics of his songs had to be changed because they were crude and rude. For instance, Tutti Frutti, oh, Rudy. That song was originally Tutti Frutti, Good Booty. It was a song about gay sex, and they had to change the words before they would record it. Zaldina Robinson, a writer and a scholar, says in that film that the South is the home of all things queer. And by queer, she doesn't necessarily mean gay. It means anything that is just different. Richard struggled his whole life to be accepted for who he was, and the hardest fight was with himself. He just wanted to be loved. Love had been denied to him since he was a child, except by his mother. He was one of 12 children, and his father threw him out of the house because he was gay, but here's the dark irony, led him back in the house when he started making hit records and making money. His father owned a nightclub and Little Richard's records were hot in the nightclub. So he let him move back in the house as a gay man. Did you notice that they kind of skimmed past the part where Little Richard's friend kills his father? Oh, yeah. The, the, the like, family dynamics are crazy. There's more of a story there I, because I think his father was cruel Maybe it was a boyfriend and it was just like... Well, his father was as conflicted as he was. His father was a preacher, plus he was a nightclub owner. May or may not have been running hookers out of the nightclub. So his father was just as conflicted as he was. So the question for me, uh, from me to you, Fritz, is do you think... Because it is, it's a story of extremes. Like he's got his steering wheel and he's either pulling it hard to mm-hmm. the left or hard to the right. Like he's not able to find balance because... So if he were... If, if people were allowed to just be themselves, like if how he wanted to dress and how he, who he fell in love with and all that and was attracted to, if all of that was fine, would he have had that much conflict regarding his evangelical teachings I don't know. as a child? I, I, that's a great question. I do know that he used to have orgies with both men and women, but have the Bible in the bed with him while he had the orgies. He was a very conflicted man. That is man. the definition if of we conflict. we could just stop for a second where I could quote Deuteronomy here before we finish. Anyway, he was uh, but but a, a gentle soul. And there are sound bites in here where he admits his failings. And uh, he was a great performer. Mick Jagger said he was the guy that taught him how to use the entire stage. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Nigel Rogers, who is a great uh, producer and also one of the members of Chic, produced David Bowie's record. And he said David Bowie's biggest wish in life was to sound like Little Richard. So he's had an incredible, and the Beatles opened for him on a European tour. So he was an incredible person and very sad. Did you find, were you, were you sort of melancholy at the end of the movie? Very sad because he could not escape his own fear 
of the hereafter because yeah. he, he just thought that like having the Bible in the room is like a, during an orgy is like asking for forgiveness while you're doing the yeah the no, sin. It was, it was it, crazy. It, and so that's that's very painful to watch. But also watching in in two hours watching side by side by side little Richard and then all of the acts that came out in the 80s, uh, every, yeah. everybody who was much more free with how they presented themselves if they felt like dressing like Elton John or wh- you know whoever you just see. Yeah. It's clear as day the influences that he was way ahead of that curve. Right, you're absolutely right. Let's get to our guest before yeah. we get bored. What's the guest pontificate? Well, Herbie J. Pilato has been a friend of mine for a long time. He is a prolific author. Nobody knows more facts and people involved in classic television than Herbie. He's written, I think it's 16 books we decided on. He also hosted a talk show about classic television on Amazon Prime called Then Again with Herbie J. Pilato. (laughs) We're going to talk to him about his most recent interesting book, Retroactive Television, an in-depth perspective on classic TV's social circuitry. And the person that wrote the great forward to this book is none other than Ben Walton, Eric Scott. Eric appeared in all things Walton through the years, starting with the origin story of the Walton's homecoming, A Christmas Story in 1971. He's also been seen on many other classic TV venues, Bewitched and The Fall Guy and Medical Center and The Doris Day Show. And we have them both in the studio. And we're so happy to have you guys. I just hope we don't run out of time before we finish asking you guys questions. I'll keep quiet. You talk. Right, let me well, ask Thanks for having talk. us. First oh, you're, you're, yes. so, you're so very welcome. Quite an introduction. I don't know between the movies. I w- before the- we before we get into the weeds with uh, uh, Herbie's book, I want to ask you about Ben Walton. Ben Walton, in all the descriptions, was sort of the idealist of the family. But I want you to describe who this character was and how he fit in the family puzzle there. Well, I think that as the producers saw that we had so many kids, uh, they 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 watched us as people. And they started picking up on some nuances that we might have shown them on the set. And for myself, um, I always liked business. And um, they followed that a little bit with Ben. Uh, he worked on the, on, in the uh, woodmill, uh, sawmill with, with Daddy and, and worked with John Boy when he was working on the, uh, the uh, Chronicle. Uh, doing his newspaper. So Ben got himself involved with whatever was going on on the mountain. Um, so that's very interesting. Your your personal life dictated how the writers... It, I think it helped them. Character. It helped them. Um, there was a lot of differences that they that they changed and, and took along the way. But for us, you know, I, I know that there was a couple of episodes about my height and a couple of things that they dealt with. And so they picked up on that. And, and, and I was very comfortable with that. So they Which came Which I me. identified with in that one episode. Did you? Oh, very when much. I, I thought it was a big deal. Yeah. When I got the little heels and yeah. put them on to be taller and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, um, but I was very comfortable with all that. And, and so they, they, they embraced it and let us go with it. Uh, and then Ben later on, when he went off to the war and stuff, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of different things that they were able to add to his character. So I was very appreciative of that. And and, and then Weezy's got tons of questions. She's, she's got all sorts of things to talk to you about. But I, I wanted to say about the war, because I think we've had other discussions about the great television of the late 60s and 70s and how it's sort of plugged into the American zeitgeist. I think the Waltons, Little House on the Prairie, some of these 
shows that showed strong families against the adversity of life came at exactly the right moment because we were in the midst of the Vietnam War. We'd never been more separated as a culture as we were then. So I think that, and you going off to war sort of was a different reflection on that whole topic. And I, I just think it was so important to have this type of writing and this type of tight family commitment at a time when we seemed to be coming apart at the seams. Oh, I think it was why it was brought on. Uh, there was a there was a whole conversation between the government at that time and TV, and they wanted to show uh, a different angle on, and and have family shows again that were going to be a little bit more wholesome. Uh, so the Waltons were put on against Flip Wilson and Mod Squad, two powerhouses, but very different types of entertainment. And uh, lo and behold, the show actually it was in last place the first week it was on the air and the end of the first season. Um, we were, I think, number one that week. And we also had, I think it was 11 Emmy nominations. And uh, that was the beginning of, of, of its rise. It's kind so of like that was, warm fire that's in the corner of the room that you don't quite notice it. it it's there. And yeah. then eventually everyone winds up gathered around it. it. Was, well, every, it happened every because week. of the, the homecoming. Well, the homecoming was was the was the impetus for the series, but uh, again, it was just I, I I remember CBS they were talking at the time and they wanted to bring on a show that would bring family values, and you know we look now fifty years later and. It's very timely to be talking about these things, too. Well, it was so relatable because the characters were not cookie-cutter, and they were real. They right. got upset with each other. They cried. They got angry. The parents got angry at the children. You just really didn't see that on TV before. There was the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family, which was their own thing. And you had a, you had a teenage character who quoted literature. And so there were a lot of kids that really related to that. He was a different type of... A hero. Well, we weren't creating popular characters. Um, they they became popular, but they weren't that that phototypical type of. Oh, this is the way a, a family would be on TV. In fact, it was never seen like that before. Uh, so we were very we were very lucky. And then you know having Earl Hamner on the set, and he was it was his family, and uh, yeah, he took he took some creative license along the way, but uh, he definitely allowed um, the family to shine on a level that no one had ever seen a family before. Mm-hmm. So it was we were honored. How did they did they go out of their way, the producers and writers and Earl? to make sure that even though you kids had jobs to do, that you also got to experience your childhood? Well, I, 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 <laughs> that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, that, that, that's, that's not their problem. Mm. You know, you're, you're, you're working and your job is to show up on time and to not be difficult and to do the job that's asked of you. You're, you're going into an adult world. And uh, for myself, I was 12 when I did the, the homecoming, and I worked and went to Pierce College at nighttime to get my degree after high school, and I did that, and we filmed until I was 23. So um, you, you do what you got to do to, and as far as filling it to have a child, I didn't realize how much I missed until I had kids myself. Okay. And then I realized that I, I missed uh, that the high school proms and this and and the graduations and stuff and I have three kids so I've seen it with them and I didn't have the opportunity to go off to a four-year college uh, I was filming so uh, I, I'm all three kids are my youngest is right now finished his first year at Syracuse oh. and uh, our, our middle one is at University of Denver and she's gonna be a senior and our eldest got her master's and 
and she just got married a couple months ago. Oh so, my goodness! So I, your I've job seen, here is done, Dad. <clears throat> well, I hit no, the bark a lounge room. Is it really ever done? No, it's <laughs> not. It's, no, I don't no, think no, it is. No, the monthly request, but but I I do realize how much we missed. Um, but fortunately, I was on a set with a lot of other kids. That's the most thing. other shows yeah. I was on. I was the only kid on there. Yeah, you know, I did the, like you mentioned the medical center. I remember I did that episode, and it was with Steve Lawrence, and and, oh, and it was I a wonderful it. episode. But I was the only kid on the set, and that was the way it was for most of my my experience in, on TV. Did until you have the on-set tutors that was there? Yeah, they always had uh, teachers for us. I I carried a little bit heavy load for, for my education, so they had to have a, a second and a third teacher for me. Wow. Um, because I was taking German, and I was taking some advanced math classes. Oh. So the regular teacher was there for the rest of the, the kids, and then they brought in two other teachers for me. So they provide what you need for a good education. Um, so they, they took care of us on that. But as far as the social part, that's up no, to you to figure absolutely. out. But you know what? You all turned out okay. <laughs> you know, uh, like a lot of child, former child actors well, did I've, not. Well, I've always said the child stars, <clears throat> it's, it's very much like the public. You know, we always talk about the ones that have gone, have gone wrong. That's just, that's human nature to talk mm -hmm. about those things. There's a lot of wonderful people that have been in TV or in movies that turned out just fine. Mm -hmm. But we always want to focus on the negative and the, and the, the heartbreaking stories that are out there, the Judy Some Garland's of it is a product stuff. of the relationship with the parent and the child, right? How, Absolutely. How, how much of this was their own decision to go into show business? I, and well, I was very fortunate. I had a very, very strong mom that was there for me. She came on the set every day until I was 18 years of age. Um, it was a conversation we would have before I got into the business of, is it something I want to do? Um, and she was there. She stopped working um, as a bookkeeper, and I paid her to come on the set with me. Um, but I went home and I did my, my chores and cleaned up after the dog and cleaned my room on Saturdays. And I did everything that I was, and I, you know, I was went through Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout, so I, I there was some normalcy that was put in. But uh, it's an unusual situation, and then you've got a lot of power, um, especially with parents that aren't as strong as my mom, where they, they look at the, the numbers, the money coming in or whatever. So they start making changes in their lifestyle as a family. Well, I didn't have that. I, my, my mom and, and dad were very supportive of keeping our family the same way. I did buy cars for them, which was unusual. <laughs> I helped my older brother with getting a car and bought a TV for the family. So I was very generous, I felt, but I also, it was my, it was my career and it wasn't, I wasn't supporting my family. And so I was very fortunate that I had a family that. So you really had the me. best of both worlds, Eric. I think so. In many ways. I think so. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about in light of Herbie's <clears throat> book and the framework that he's looking at is sort of this feedback loop of how does TV influence us and how do we influence the shows that, that come on the air as, as a society. And you were not just consuming television like any kid, you were creating it. So how did creating it affect how you enjoyed it or what you got out of it when you watched it? Mm. Well, um, as an actor, when you're making a, a production, you're not thinking about the end product at all. Mm. Um, you, you're just, you're there for the moment. I never, I, I would look at, the first year I looked at the shows um, just to see how the editing was done and the post-production was done. But after that, I didn't usually watch them very closely because, um, they could skew you. 
They could, you know, change the way you might do things in the future. Um, also, the response that the public was going to get from it, I, I didn't watch that either. Mm-hmm. So I still watched my usual shows, right? So and, did, and enjoyed them. But did you were were you more aware of how shows are created and therefore like a little bit more? Uh, I'm not sure. Judgmental well, about the, the content. I think you're. I think once you've been on a set, mm-hmm. you you learn that there's it's make believe. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I would watch them, and my my game was always, uh, do I know the line first? Uh, I would always say the line before the actor would say the line. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. So I, I got pretty good at that. <laughs> um, but I also saw the technical side if they, you know, made a bad shot or if it was a bad, you know, a, a bad cut on the editing side. So, yeah, you become very technical when you're doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. But that that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Her- Herbie, what classifies as classic television? Just old you know the sepia tone past yeah, or is yeah. it something that's stuck with the american public it's both really i mean it has to, if it has to be good and old yeah. <laughs> to make it classic and i i stick with the book i addressed the 50s and the 60s and the 70s a little bit of the 80s but the 50s 60s and 70s to me those are ideal uh, classic eras with classic shows mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know seinfeld became the new classic uh, Frasier, the new classic. Reba, which is one of my favorites, was the last, in my opinion, the last family sitcom. That shit, that's a new classic. Mm-hmm. I would say the, the music went that way too with the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. It was unbelievable what happened when, with music, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll stick with TV. Uh, but what your book did was show some of these transitions. You talk about the start of the sitcom in 49. You start you talk about the start of the uh, variety television in the late 40s and how that's morphed into like The Voice and uh, American Idol. America's Got Talent and all that kind of stuff now. It, it's just, uh, there are no new ideas, just reconfigurations of them. Yes, and I and there's a lot, and I talk about this a lot, but there's a, a lot of talent in today's television, both in front of and behind the cameras, but what I'm not seeing and what I just so love about the classic shows is charm. There's there's just so much charm to the older shows where everybody is more likable and they're still dimensional, but they're not as, as mean-spirited or as sardonic as many of the characters, not all, but many of the characters have become today. You had a great quote from Red Skelton in there that what seems to be missing, especially when he was at the end of his career, but now more so, now there there is a, a, a missing aspect of laughter with tears. Red Skelton made you laugh, but he made you cry. Jackie Gleason, that uh, bartender character he did, would make you laugh, but it was also a very empathetic character. And you don't see that. Now everything is so dark and cutting and, you know, the writing. I think one of the best written shows on television is Succession. But no family talks to one another that way because they're left in a bloody pool at the end of the show. They're just, you know, they're, they, they trash one another. There's no, uh, as, as Red Skelton said, laughter with tears. Wow, there's no there's no dimension. For some reason, it is a bad thing to have at least a happy ending. I don't see a lot of happy endings on shows today. If there is some kind of joyful moment that some of these new characters or name it of a drama or any comedy sometimes, if there is a joyful moment at the end, Someone will then run into the room and say, oh, wait, Bob just got stabbed. And that's... <laughs> Sucked the life out of the room. Yeah. Oh, no, Bob. 
and that's how okay it but ends. herbie so during the pandemic did you notice that uh during the the emmys uh Ted Lasso wins everything, mm-hmm. even though I don't think the performances were the best since mm-hmm. they were up against Henry and he was the best. Uh, but but it won- But that was the year we just needed niceness. Mm. We just needed... Ted Lasso is... I love that show. It's great, um, but, but did it need to win everything? We were so hungry for what Herbie's talking about, for just people to be kind. Right. And for kindness to win. It kind of goes to that. We're in the anti-hero era now, starting with the Sopranos, where the guys who are ugly, but they have a pleasant side because they go to a therapist. <laughs> but but uh, but uh, there's all. I mean, there's shows like uh, Shameless on uh, on uh, on Showtime. I loved all the performances. I just I wanted to bathe after I watched that show. It was so dark and so. And we're just in a period of darkness. I hope. We swing the other direction. I think we are going to. I think it's going that way, especially because there's so many of the classic TV channels now that the younger generation is is watching. They're watching mm. that girl, watching Bewitched, the Waltons. They're, they're, and they're seeing the different comparisons. They're physically seeing that these shows are lit brighter. Mm. You know, everything oh. is darkly lit. Oh, and no. the, the, the mm. actors are speaking with diction and you can understand them. Not everybody's mumbling. So it's kind of like, it's also, it's not just like, is the show good? It's also, how does this show make me feel? How exactly. do I feel when I'm watching? Yes. You can watch Mayberry on a loop all day long and you'll just feel good. Yes, it's true. And it's Eric true. and I were talking before the show, he made a great comment that we're talking about all these uh, new venues for the older shows. Me TV, Antenna TV, um, I can't Cozy. Think. Cozy. And Eric said there are more people seeing those his show on a weekly basis now than saw it when it was at its well, peak. Yeah. If it's and on, they're on seven days a week. We're on seven days a week, five or six different networks, four or five times a day. So if you add all that up, yeah. and it's now across, it's it's global now. Yeah. And you can stream um, it. And Well, it's streamed. It's on, on demand. It's every way you can. So more people are probably consuming the Waltons now than when it was first done back And in I'll the bet 70s. they are. And I'll bet the Waltons and the Andy Griffith show and some of these softer shows, um, not soft in, in content, but, but gentler, you know, more human, uh, because of the darkness that we find ourselves in in our current world. I think people seek that out because it's like a warm hug. Well, I think that people watch sometimes to be entertained. And when you're... When you're going through the world right now that we have, and it's rough, and I feel I have so much empathy for the people that are just trying to get by. Um, and, you know, when they get home, and I, you know, we were just out the other day to Lincoln, Illinois last week, and just meeting the fans. And you can tell after the rough life that they, they're having just to get home, and after they put their kids to bed, every night they just want to go to bed and have a smile on their face. Yes. It's back to the, the watch our show. And, and it, so glad that they're getting a gift now that we did 50 years ago. We're honored by that. But um, it makes you wonder what's going on in our world. Well, not only <laughs> now, what's the opposite effect of that? What are the people feeling that are watching the the edgy shows and the mm-hmm. darkness? And the, well, uh, what's the opposite effect? That's the scary I thing. I remember Breaking Bad came out, and it took me a few years to want to get into it um, because everyone was saying it was the best out. Mm-hmm. And I watched it. I did watch the whole thing. It was brilliant. However, I, I, I felt like a shower was needed. I could never watch more than one episode. This binging, no, I don't understand people how they could do no, more than one. I had to get up for it. My wife and I would watch it, and afterwards I would go, oh. yes. It seems like it, <laughs> yeah. it desensitizes you, and maybe you go online and post something nasty instead of 
why yes. don't you just keep That's that thought to yourself? You, you just hurt someone's feelings. But what is the impact of it? Yeah. You know? So I, let's talk real quick about the urban-rural divide because I never gave it any thought as a child. I was a suburban kid. But there was an interesting quote in your book from Paul Harvey uh, regarding uh, the your show of shows, which I always thought of, you know, it's before my childhood, but I always thought of as a classic. But here you had a guy saying something about how these urban, what he meant was Jews, you know, think, I think that was a subtext, think this is funny. And then we had, you know, all the rural shows, which were, which were extremely popular. And then all of a sudden there was the rural purge and they were canceled. Then they put the Waltons on. But was, was that always going on? Were there always people who felt like folks in big cities didn't really ever on television speak to their way of life or their values? Well, I mean, you know, going back to Amos and Andy, you know, when that that show was considered um, racist in, in many ways, and yet the people involved with that show, the African-American actors, were devastated when that show was canceled because they that was their livelihood. They but, just didn't like it when white guys played the black guys. Well, that was only on the radio, yeah, but that was, no, that was bad. But when it came on, on screen, it was, these were African-American, and they dealt with racism in the show. Mm-hmm. So it was that was a very uh, odd, odd situation. I grew up in the inner city mm-hmm. of Rochester, New York. You know, my, uh, my parents had nothing. We were a big Italian family, had... 10 brothers and sisters on each side. So I, you know, was gravitated towards the TV, towards escapism, towards Bewitched, Star Trek, whatever was going on mm-hmm. in the 60s, like everybody did in general, because the 60s was a tough time. So television doesn't necessarily reflect the era of the shows that are on at that time. It's kind of like 10 years later. Mm. But in the meantime, it did what all entertainment has done since the beginning of time, you know, going back to, you know, the Greeks and and then flashing forward to the, you know, 30s and, and uh, vaudeville and Broadway. People always wanted escape. But I don't see that television today. A little I, bit, though. It, it, OK, so Ted Lasso, I think that started a trend. Rob Lowe has a show called something. I'm not sure. But it's it's a similar tone. And then uh, Shrinking. Do they do they break do they break character? Do they break character? Do they stay in character? Do they wink at the camera? Do they you know always? There's this thing, this new kind of acting where everybody has these twitches where they well I don't know maybe I should do I don't know what do you think? (laughs) Nobody (laughs) nobody gives a performance anymore. They're too busy trying to play to the camera or trying to do stand up comedy in the middle of a drama. And I'm just not sure what what I'm watching. So well, I, I, uh, you have to shrinking with Harrison Ford is he, he's 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 good, amazing. He is really really. Does good he play that. it straight? Is yeah, it a very, straight um, character all the way through? He's having fun. He's laconic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a vocabulary word from high school that I just hmm. got to use <laughs> in oh. a sentence. <laughs> Say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, they have they have their own tone in the way that they rattle off lines to one another in sarcastic. But his charm is very real charming. High. Very high. Okay, okay, yeah. shot. But every time I try to watch something though, in the I newer shows, I understand. There's commercials, and then I'm like 27 commercials. I'm like, wait a minute, what was I watching? And I forget. Well, 
And and then I, I want, I really, really, really want to like the new shows, but it's very difficult for me. It's very difficult to me because I do not see the charm. I will give all of these new shows that you young people are talking about. <laughs> but, <laughs> I will give it a chance, but so far, Reba to me, I, I mentioned it before, was the last great family sitcom. I love Reba. Oh my gosh, what a series. And Frasier, the last great sophisticated sitcom. Well, I'm well, a, a Frasier. Yes. My ex-wife went to a taping, said it's funnier than it was the first time. Will and Grace, she went to a taping of that show, said it's funnier than it was Will the and Grace first time. Is, I'm a Will and Grace person. I, I could watch that all day, every day. It makes me laugh every time. And I, it's groundbreaking. And in terms of like the feedback loop between us and what we're watching, revolutionary and beautiful. Night Court is back and doing really well. So I want to talk for a moment, Herbie, because you sat down and had really interesting conversations with lots of people for this book. You talk to creators, you talk to their children, and you and you pose probably your questions and through this framework of how how did your programming affect society? And so tell us about some of those the highlights of some of your conversations. Well, it was really great to speak with Ed Spielman, first of all. He created Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bruce Lee, I want to make that clear, Bruce Lee did not create Kung Fu. Ed Spielman and Howard Friedlander created Kung Fu in the 1960s. So um, to have this kind of... Um, well, and I did the Kung Fu Book of Wisdom and the Kung Fu Book of Cain, so that's why I really I had a chance to sit down with Ed and talk in depth. He was excited to talk about it because he felt... Um, that the television of yesterday was what I've been saying. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so impactful, and he brought it. Um, he brought a dimension to the book, a validity to it that I really, really felt it needed. Um, and I was just completely taken back by That's by, so by cool. him. That's so cool that you got to have that conversation. What was the attraction of the kung fu genre? Was it the martial arts? Was it the morality in there? Well, it was an odd thing because David Carradine debuted with kung fu in 1972 just as President Nixon was holding historic uh, conversations with China's Chairman Mao. And there was the hippie movement. And David Carradine was kind of like a hippie mm-hmm. on TV. He walked barefoot. He showed mm-hmm. up on Merv Griffin one day barefoot. He was kind of like Jesus. A very Jesus-esque, <laughs> and no doubt about it. And it introduced mainstream America to Asian thought. It introduced mainstream America to New Age thought. And what? And there was also some controversy because he wasn't Asian. You know, why, why, why didn't they get an Asian actor? Bruce Lee auditioned for the role, he was considered too tough. But the character of Kwa Chang Kane was always half Asian and always half American. So they wanted someone more tranquil, number one. Also, too, at the time, television was just not ready for an Asian character. It just, as a lead, it just wasn't going to happen. But what Kung Fu did for supporting actors of, Asian Amer- of the Asian American community, it gave more work to actors like uh, Benson Fong and James Hong, uh, Mako, all of these amazing Asian Americans were playing 
characters for the first time that were not stereotypical. So I get a little upset when people put Kung Fu down mm -hmm. and say that it you know, didn't do this, it didn't do, it did a lot. Mm -hmm. Now the best part about it is we would play on the sets during the lunch. Yeah? Yeah, because it was filmed it was right, right, next, right door. next door. Wow. So it was, the, they called it the Lost Horizon set. Yes. And that's where we would play on the exterior. And then when they, every once in a while they would go for the interior and we'd go over there and they were busy lighting the candles because, you know, there was a lot of candles lot in some of, candles. of those scenes. Was it grasshopper scenes? Yeah, yeah, of course. So Flashbacks. We would, so we, of course, would go and, and, and play around with the sets. So for us, we loved Kung Fu because it was a lot different than Walton's Mountain. <laughs> that is so cool. That is so cool. No, it was, it was an awesome show. And it was only, I think, uh, three years. And they were the first one to do the slow motion effect which was supposed to tone down the violence a little bit. And then the $6 million man of the Bionic Woman picked up on that, mm. and, as well as the Incredible Hulk and all pretty much adventure shows. But what was great about it is as violent as Kung Fu was, they only did the Kung Fu towards the end of the episode, just like Samantha would only twitch toward the end of the episode, just like Steve and Jamie would only do their bionics towards the end of the episode, so people would have something to anticipate where they wouldn't get tired of seeing the action, which you see all the time, to the point of where, okay, so what? It's and more everybody's a martial artist. It's like, it's like a song, it should be a slow build. Yes, then this is what's missing too. The Barry Manilow method. Yeah, <laughs> is is that Mandy. slow build exactly correct? And these days, David Carradine would never be cast on that part because Hollywood no, would explode. It, it would not happen today. But it would it it would not happen back in seventy two to have Bruce Lee. It just wasn't going to happen. So he paved the way. Mm -hmm. And by the way, because of Bruce Lee's rejection from Kung Fu, he went back to his homeland of China and became a martial arts legend. Mm -hmm. So that wouldn't have happened if he didn't get rejected. Okay. But I will, point. I'll tell you, again, going back to the Waltons and talking about casting. It all comes back to the Waltons. It, it always does, <laughs> well, especially, especially today. Do. <laughs> uh, we did, a, we did a, a show which we were having a Native American uh, um, on the show and we had, it was in the barn, he thought that there was some ancient burial grounds there and everything else. So they brought a wonderful actor in, but Ralph and Will decided that they needed to get someone that was of, of uh, uh, Indian person. Yes, indigenous. Oh, wow. Uh, wow, that's big. So that's so cool. They, they said that they will not work on the show. So we did a little bit of a, a strike and uh, they recast it over the weekend and we started. Um, and they brought in an actual uh, indigenous uh, actor. Now you said and Ralph and Will. Ralph and Will. They said they would not work with the other actor. No, Ralph and Will. Ralph, Ralph Waite Ralph and Will Waite. Gear. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. daddy and grandpa. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, who's ready for some Walton's trivia? <laughs> we can all play. Okay. Except for me, because I have the answers. <laughs> Walton's trivia. Number one, who are the only two actors to appear in every episode of The Waltons? Well, I'm probably down there as one of them, um, but yes. but there's and then the other one would be probably uh, Mary McDonough or John. John Wamsley. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Pretty much all of us did all the shows. There were a couple of shows. Like I think there was a couple for Judy that she was pregnant, mm. and then we did a two-hour show, and they didn't know where the placement of that show was going to be. 
So what they did is they said, you know what, we're going to keep you out of this one because we might show the two hour before it. So there was some of that kind of stuff. But she was there all the time. And, you know, yeah. I mean, there might be one episode here and there that she wasn't in. And, and, and Mary might have missed one because she might have been sick that day or something like that. But she was originally in the script. Mm-hmm. So right. we can give them the credit, can't we? Of course. <laughs> okay. This is our game. We make the rules. Number two, Eric's character, Ben, is named after whom? Well, that would have been Daddy's brother, mm-hmm. um, Ben. And he he died in the war, World War One. Right. Yeah. Very good. You're doing well hey. so far. It's two for two. Okay. Pretty good. Which like of the home. following Academy? This is a tricky question that I composed. Oh. Which of the following Academy Award winners did not appear on the Waltons? Sissy Spacek, Ron Howard, Tom Hanks, Ned Beatty, Beulah Bondi. Well, give me the names again. Tom Hanks. Oh, I know. Yeah, I was going to well, say. Tom Hanks, yeah. yeah. He wasn't in it, but all the no. rest were. The rest yeah. were. Yeah. And a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. There's some wonderful performances yeah. in The Waltons. Number four, The Waltons was commissioned by CBS as a result of negative backlash against the network's rural purge of the early 1970s, a series of cancellations of several rural-themed shows. Which of these canceled rural shows had been housed in The Waltons' home? They were using well, your house. Mayberry RFD was from that yeah. show. Exactly. It was in the same house. Yeah. So if you watch reruns of Mayberry RFD, mm-hmm. the, barn. the one with Ken Berry, yeah. you know, you'll yeah. see the Walton's house. Mm-hmm. And number five, is Richard Thomas now older than Will Gear was when he began playing grandpa? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and I think we're all older than grandma at this point. <laughs> so to give you the numbers, Richard Thomas is now a young 71, and Will Gear was 70 during the first season of The Waltons. I saw Richard in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and he was breathtaking. Wasn't he amazing? Really good. It was yeah. really great. Never ages. He looks no, yeah. he great. Exactly the but same. the energy, but the, the script... Uh, was oh, yeah. by Aaron Sorkin was yeah. just unbelievable yeah. and we, we actually saw it twice we took the kids one yeah. night and then oh. we did a date was, on the another night really but it was so brilliant and I always thought that the courtroom scene was the most uh, dramatic in the whole book anyway so it was great that he concentrated on yeah. that and it blew up it was wonderful yeah they did good I'm glad another, another thing that you talk about is uh, the the introduction of the miniseries that sort of enveloped everybody's imagination, starting with Roots and how that became an opportunity for, uh, they were sort of fact-based miniseries where people could learn some real history and that became a huge thing. Can you imagine binge watching Roots all in one night? How's the impossible? <laughs> but, that, but I loved that. I thought that was a really positive move in, in the part of television. Yeah. It, well, there was Rich Man, Poor Man started, right, you know, the that. miniseries really. North and South. North and South, Winds of War. Um, that, it, it was the first time that fam- it really was the first binge watching when you think about it. Right. It was on every night. There for that oh, week yeah, and every, Roots, yeah. You know, it's. Uh, I think Richmond Poorman was every week, but then they took it to the next level with Roots every every night, and the family watched it together. Mm-hmm. You know, there were maybe there were two TVs in the house, but mostly there was that one television where everybody sat down and watched it together. So the experience was not just oh that really affects me, but it affects us at the same time. And then you can discuss it. And then well, you can discuss that, it. Great that pieces was, of American history oh absolutely that was the water cooler energy Mm -hmm. absolutely and and the only thing on right now that has the water cooler is sports 
because mm-hmm. it's the only thing that we watch and we actually talk mm-hmm. in real time mm-hmm. because everything else everyone's afraid to talk about because it might be that they're going to watch it this weekend or right. whatever so they're well and it's own. the only thing that's going to save network television because prime time is getting killed by streaming yep there is no more appointment television where everybody sits down and watches seinfeld with a family uh, everybody can stream whatever they want on their phone and everything but sports the live sports event is still the go-to event for family viewing but but again, here it is many years later for us. When I talk to the fans, they watch the show, and not only do they love the show, but it reminds of them sitting with their parents or their grandparents or their brothers or their sisters yeah. who are no longer there. Um, it reminds them of those times of sitting together because, Absolutely. like you said, they were watching the shows together. You know, they all got together at 8 o'clock on Thursday nights, and they watched the show together. So, yeah. and, and the I clarific- have a memory of laying on my parents' bed watching the Waltons because for some reason there other people in the house were watching another show and uh, usually my parents bedroom wasn't open <laughs> well what year was this now what first season or many seasons many in? seasons in because welcome know? back Cotter was another one that probably if you have yeah. some siblings they probably and then sometimes <laughs> my, you know my mom would come and sit on the bed and watch it with me okay and we just had this she she started saying just to make fun of you guys because it was fun she started saying you smell like a pine cone which who wouldn't want to and I, you know there's air fresheners that smell and i'm like no you smell like a pine cone we were suburban think, buffalo kids yeah. trying to pretend that we knew what it was like to smell like a pine cone. <laughs> well <laughs> i think okay. the, the, i think it's the, a compliment the clarification <laughs> is with with popular culture in particular it's the the core of the the core message of the book retroactive television is not that TV is educational like PBS, but TV is educational pop culture. The pop, pop culture version or the the mainstream entertainment version of TV is, is educational. It's an untapped resource. The way I feel it and the way, the way I talk about it in the book is an untapped resource, resource of education that people didn't sit down and say, hey, I want to be a great independent career woman because of Mary Tyler Moore. They didn't sit down directly and that didn't happen. But ultimately, mm-hmm. that was the Seat outcome. Seat it's Seat crafting our, our awareness of ourselves mm-hmm. and our society in ways that are subliminal or right on the nose. You know, you might watch an episode of something and walk away going that, you know, they made a good point. But like you talk about Westerns as being little morality plays. And they really were. They were. They were some good writers. They had a beginning, a middle, and an end. They were well. If you watch a rerun of the of Gunsmoke, oh you're my like, gosh. wow. The first six years of yeah. Gunsmoke, those half hour black and whites, yeah. are amazing. And I think when they stretched it to an hour, there was no reason to do it. If they it, it got to be, if you watch those first half hours and you watch the the hour color episodes later, it's like, you know what, dudes. You should have just left it a half hour because it was just dead air later on. And the morality was black and white, too, on some of those things. Ooh. You could, you, you could mm. walk away with that. And you got Dennis Weaver. Which, oh, you know, come he on. was terrific. <laughs> they were all terrific. Yeah. Doc, that guy, was in, what a natural actor. Yeah. One uh, of the uh, formats of TV that survived and been reinvented every once in a while but seems to live has have lived as long as television is the procedural you know you mm. had uh perry mason and matlock and then you've got every dick wolf show that eats up you know 100 percent of nbc prime time well that- the difference is 
in my opinion, mm-hmm. is that you watch Perry Mason. I mean, that's just uh, film, TV noir, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they were just genius. But you watch the newer shows, the, uh, it's the same scene. Every time you put that show on, they're there he's doing the interrogation. That's the same one. It's the same mm-hmm. scene. I don't see any drama. I don't meet any characters. I just see the these individuals, one, the, the lawyer, the attorney, the cop, interrogating the criminal, and that's it. And that's the same scene every week. Perry Mason, no. Perry Mason, there were these beautiful stories. I think Law and, what is it? Law and Order. Law and Order, Perry Mason in many ways was that because they set up the story and then they'd they'd attack it in the last half hour in court. But it's just just, uh, very, very repetitive today. Whereas Perry Mason was not. Owen Marshall, counselor at law. The Defenders Mm. with E.G. Marshall Mm -hmm. and Robert Reed, who would later play. uh, That was ahead of it. Simon Richard made up one of his first TV appearances as like nine years old on The Defenders. Oh, did he? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Really? Oh, yeah. He was like acting forever. He knows a lot of stuff. So, Herbie, let's talk for a moment about after-school specials because the Uh, reason I, and Dean is going to love this conversation, because here's the thing. They're fascinating because they impacted us at young ages, but they're not rerun. So... All you have is the one viewing of the, of them at twelve or fourteen, and and uh, and we've we've probably only watched them once. But then you kind of describe them in your book as having awesomely literal titles. Give us Did so I say the that? kids are like, <laughs> tell the kid in the title what it's about. So give it, give us. You know, now that's that's the one example or um, exception of popular TV becoming directly educational. Those things were created to be educational and mm-hmm. they were so unique mm-hmm. they came on after school sure but they were but they were original productions made for kids yeah. absolutely yeah. and they were well oh. you did too um, which were what were your titles which mother is mine sure <laughs> and <laughs> that comes up <laughs> and um I forget the name of the other one. <laughs> well, I and the reason it. they went away is because of the deregulation of children's television by the FCC, right? They they didn't wasn't there a mandate that they had to have a certain number of hours of children's programming directed at a certain young demographic? Yeah, that, that, and then in the Reagan administration, yes. that all went away. Yes, in the eighties, things changed big. Yeah, I think they just threw it on Saturdays uh, with the cartoons. They just that that satisfies our needs. Yeah. Um, so they just because it was they were expensive productions yeah, compared yeah. to putting on something else that they would have been able to do that was repeats of something that they did and they didn't pay the actors. So. But Herbie, talk about some of the topics addressed. Maybe Dina, you can look up what Eric was on besides which mother is mine. And uh, some of the titles and some of the topics addressed were really uh, actually very pertinent yeah. to young people who did not know that they weren't the only person with this issue. Yeah. Well, and yes, and there were the issue-oriented ABC After School specials just right at the same time that they started doing the issue-oriented TV movies at night. Oh, right. Like A Case of Rape was, you know, the first issue-oriented TV movie. As far as the ABC After School special that affected me the most, and I can't think of the title, but it was where, I think it was, I can't think of the title, but the little boy lost, died, uh, his cat died. Mm-hmm. His cat, that was the first time that for a young audience that you would have deal with death. I think probably since Bambi, you know, at least on TV. And it really, really affected me. I never felt, now this is a personal thing, I never felt that sad 
um, watching a TV show as I did because a character that I became familiar with died. Mm. A cat, whether or not, but it was still a character. Well, now they turned it into a procedural yep. where they'd figure out who murdered the cat. Yeah. The right. cat DNA. Yeah. 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 I guess you didn't watch our one when the raccoon died or... <laughs> I watched every single one of them. Or the, the cat died on ours. No, you know my favorite episode? First of all, what the happened? first five years of the show is, is my favorite. But I love the... Um, where uh, the deer... Or not the deer, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the fawn, deer. yeah. The fawn, where the two kids saved the fawn. Yeah. Right. Well, what happened to your raccoon, Eric? I yeah. just died. Were you piqued her interest? Just died. It was your raccoon? No, it was uh, Elizabeth's. Oh, she Cammy. loved that raccoon. Yeah, yeah. she loved the raccoon. Mm -hmm. So we have to talk about uh, talk TV. First of all, uh, the gentleman that just passed his, passed away, God rest his soul. Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. I just listened to a podcast about him on This American Life driving home last <laughs> night. That guy had a very interesting life. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, geez, I forgot what I was going to say. But anyway. Oh, uh, talk shows. No. Uh, but uh, he even admits himself that he was the ringmaster for the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> <laughs> That's a you pretty know, good cell phone. I, it's, it's an he interesting thing in. because he says that, just like Don Rickles, you know, who I really think was hysterical, mm -hmm. but, you know, everybody said he was the nicest guy in the world and he really didn't mean it. Okay, but he said it. Yeah, he said it and people think it. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. and same thing with Jerry Springer. He's a wonderful guy. He's a great human. But look at what he did. He wrought. It's like you say you're playing a part. It's called the Jerry Springer Show and your name is Jerry Springer and you're saying these things to these people. So you can't just, you can't separate yourself from it. Go ahead. I, I have a feeling about him the same as I have about Maury Povich. They're like slum landlords. Mm. They would never be caught dead in a restaurant with any of the guests on that show. Absolutely. They're just picking money out of their pockets and twisting their little sad minds. And around. laughing about it all the and way to the bank. And laughing about it all the way to the bank. And there's no real cultural advancement we make from these shows. It's just awful. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's showing humanity stuff. at its worst. <laughs> there it is. That's exactly right. Yeah. But you're also getting people who agree. Well, you know, I know that you're not that mad at your mother-in-law, but are you? could you throw a chair at her for television? And, you know, there's, well, they encourage that. Yeah, that's the sad exactly. thing. I mean, that started with Geraldo in, what was it, the late 80s when the, he broke his nose and the chair, the first chair was thrown and that was the end of that. You know, and, and Murph Griffin was early. gone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there was no. You may as well throw a chair at Murph. <laughs> but it's also showing the that allure of that ambulance chasing, rubbernecking energy no, of of humanity, sure, sure. which is sad. It, you, but you, you can find that in the political culture we find ourselves in now. Somebody turned over go a deep rock. With us right yeah, now, aren't no, you? I'm not going to get into that. But it, but there is. Yeah. I mean, the some of these extreme people and all the gun violence and everything. It's just. It's man's inhumanity to man times three. Uh-oh, Dina has a question. <laughs> I think I'm kind of a believer of like things have to get worse before they get better. Yeah, I think we had to kind of fall down far, um, but now we're kind of having a reckoning with that, right? Like the way that everyone is, you know, kind of realizing like how badly we treated celebrities, like how badly we treated like Britney Spears, how, um, how we kind of allowed the fame of, you know, people that have achieved that level of fame to just be treated as like non-humans. And we're all kind of dealing with that 
now. So, I mean, yeah, Jerry Springer had to be there to kind of bring us down to the depths, but now we're kind of like healing from that, I feel like, as a society. I, I, well, Maury Povich is still smoking along. He yeah. is. He is. I did his show, actually, in the 90s when my first Bewitched book came out, and I did the show with Aaron Murphy, who played Tabitha, and he he tried to... I wanted to go on and talk about love and everybody getting along with each other, no matter how different they were. And he definitely, you know, turned it. But I handled it well. How do you turn well. that? Well, he he did. He turned it. Okay. And it was something that I felt uncomfortable with, but I didn't feed into that. I just tried to. I think he re- was trying to allege that Darren One was the real father. <laughs> Well, Darren one was the real father. Well, the way I look at it, he was the real father of Tabitha, and Darren two was the real father of Adam, who was Tabitha. Okay. Let's talk about Elizabeth Montgomery. You seem to have a particular fixation. Oh, I really don't see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Eric did. Eric appeared. One of his first <gasps> pre-Walton's appearances was on Bewitched, and he played a character named Herbie. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> Which I finally had the universe. To oh, it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, it was a crazy moment. Elizabeth Montgomery was an amazing human being. I just finished, of course, um, your seventeenth book on her. <laughs> <laughs> no, but a documentary which you were part of. Really, Elizabeth uh, Montgomery, a bewitched life, which Eric was interviewed for. I served as one of the executive producers, one of the writers, and the, one of the on-screen commentators. And AMS Productions, AMS Pictures was amazing. People at Reels were so behind what we were trying to do with that. Uh, with that Is it streaming anywhere? I'd like to see. It that. was just it just debuted on Reels two weeks ago. It was streaming on Peacock for a little bit, so I'll let you know when it's okay. going to be rerun. But I'm very proud of that because that was something I wanted to do for 30 years, and I pitched it in like 2015 originally, and it finally happened. But Elizabeth was a special person to me because she was wealthy. She came from a wealthy up- upbringing. Her parents were Robert Montgomery. Uh, major movie star. Her mother was Elizabeth Allen, Broadway actress. And somehow, some way, she did not retain any form of arrogance. Um, she was very down to earth. And her parents instilled that in her. And she instilled that in turn in her children, who are super people in real life. Rebecca Asher is actually a director, mm-hmm. took after her father, William Asher, who directed the show, Bewitched. Mm-hmm. And so she then took that down-to-earth persona and transferred it to Samantha and she made everybody like and believe in witches because she was so likable and believable in that role. Eric, take it away because you were there. You know, you you were talking about before the Academy Award people that we had on our show Mm -hmm. and, you know, again, we had the the Beulah Bondies and I remember working with her and and it was unbelievable working with her. Um, And the others got their their Oscar nominations uh, later on and after the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but working with Elizabeth, it, it was like having a movie star. Um, she and I, and I was lucky enough to do some movie work before the show. I did some Disney films and stuff like that. And um, she reminded me of, on that level. She wasn't, she didn't remind me of it, if I can say it, like a TV actress. She was mm. like a movie star when I met her. Uh, there was a grace about her that was not typical of someone in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was just, and again, what is, what is a little 12-year-old or 11-year-old get in one week? It was obviously enough that I remembered 
her mm-hmm. and and meeting her. It was that it was that it was that moment where I went, oh wow, um, she's impressive. I rem- I will remember her. Right. Um, and that's pretty cool for you know when you're on a show for four or five days that you have that kind of memory from it. Now, did she make you disappear or turn into a frog? Or no, mine, well, mine was um, Darren turned into a boy. Okay. And then I was going to go play basketball with him. So okay. So there was so. So and, and, and again, just to bring it up to a Walton thing, Dick Sargent at that point is, is playing Darren. Right. He, um, he, he becomes a child. So I have a, a boy that works with me and we, we run off and play. However, fast forward a few years and now Dick Sargent's a guest on our show. Oh. And while I'm in the war, he is um, he's my he's I think a sergeant in, on our show. Um, so again, I remember being on the set with him and I, I reminded him that I was on his show and he goes, and I said, now you're on my show. And he goes, good job. (laughs) (laughs) So subtle. Also, I think Dick Sargent was destined to play a sergeant at some point. I think so. Yeah. Well, then there was that movie Sergeant York, which always freaked me out as a kid. Because Dick York and then Dick Sargent. And oh, movie there's called... a lot going on right there. <laughs> yeah. Before we wrap up, I have to ask you about late night television. We talked about Mr. Carson earlier. But I, uh, I sort of lament the fact that late night television doesn't have the impact on the American culture like it did back in Johnny and Merv's day. Only because there's so much. But... Uh, first of all, the most important thing he did was to sort of be a barometer to the thought process of Americans during political times with his monologue. You know, prick but don't draw blood. You know, he made fun of everybody. But now you have all three shows doing monologues that are heavy in uh, current events jokes. You have The Daily Show. You have Bill Maher. So all that energy that people are looking for somebody to help them make up their mind about how they feel sort of amortized over a bunch of platforms. I don't think those shows have the impact they used to. Also, with the Carson show, it was it was such a variety. It was America's first exposure to, say, Beverly Sills and opera music. It was America's mm. first exposure to maybe a 16-year-old violin virtuoso from Japan. It was, a, it was an intelligent conversation about astronomy with Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. It was all those things. And for some, talking about rural or middle America, this was people's first exposure to some of these topics. Well, I, the, old talk show. the importance uh, aspect of why those shows were so great were because of those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Johnny Carson let the guest talk like you guys are letting us do. You know, they they he really didn't make that show about him. He did his thing in the first monologue and then he would sit down and he really seemed interested in the guest. He was a wonderful audience, especially for well, comedians. You were there. Yeah. There, there mm-hmm. you go. Yeah. And and to, on these these new talk shows, it's about them. Everybody's doing these skits and uh, the Tonight Show. It's turned into Saturday Night Live every well, because night. they want something that will work on the Internet. So they're they're yeah. working they're 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 striving or they're aiming beyond the show itself to, and it's we'll, it is working and and let me say yeah. obviously this is whatever they're doing today is working for an awful lot of people, but I still think that you're if you're in a room and you only get to watch one show that they're given the choice they can see a snippet of each if it's going to be The Walking Dead or that girl. <laughs> I, I would think that I many people were going to choose the charming, brightly lit, 
mm-hmm. that girl with the two likable characters. And that's a real important key word in, in, in shows and in classic shows is the likability. And as I said before, the charm. The characters can be unlikable. But as long as the performance as those characters are likable, we're good. In other words, J.R., JR was not a likable character, mm-hmm. but it was Larry Hagman's likable performance as that character. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, the uh, I never real well. I've always Carson's been one of my heroes my whole life. How many times did you do his show? Eight. Mm-hmm. Because I was right upstairs. I did it with Johnny, Jay Leno, Joan Rivers, and Gary Shandling. I was like the go-to yeah. accordion. For someone, the someone canceled. Yeah, <laughs> but but I really realized, you know, the timber of his voice, his gentleness, his ability to listen. When I would listen to his shows on Sirius XM radio, you couldn't see him, but you could hear him, and I thought, wow, he was so comfortable, even just to listen to in the car. He had that great gift. Uh, you know that middle American Nebraska timber to his voice. So, th- th- in when those you talk 18... about a dichotomy, though. Like we started the show talking about Little Richard, but with Johnny, it was like that. How could one guy be so comfortable on camera and so uncomfortable oh, yeah. off camera? He's definitely. But I thought Letterman did a great job. Oh, oh Letterman's yeah. my guy. I, I oh, yeah. thought I thought he yeah. he reinvented too. the format without really reinventing it. He just kind of stretched. It. Well, he just made it relevant for the yeah. time. Yes, yes. No, I will I, go with that. It was a combination of silliness and intelligence. And, and James Corden, what he did with the, the karaoke and the and the, yeah. and the car interviews yeah. and stuff. Big I fan. thought that was no, I like very, very good. I, I, I um, think so, it's very good. Yeah. I, I, he's, he's a very talented performer. He's <laughs> he's got a great harmony ear, and I appreciate. That. No, he's got a lot of talent. I'll give him that. Yeah, so much good stuff. Um, I'm wondering what your opinion is on Seinfeld because that is a show about oh. some really unlikable people. I am so glad you brought this a up. Show about Yay, nothing. Dina. <laughs> no, there there's a it's a real important uh, transition of what's going on with that show. Mm-hmm. Those first five years were genius. Afterwards, I don't know, they were like the bizarro Seinfeld, okay? The characters, everybody started trying to be obnoxious, like Kramer. The characters were always unlikable. But in the last few years of the show, even though they were making a bazillion dollars a year, the performances became unlikable. You didn't like, at least I didn't, Jerry Seinfeld's performance as Jerry. I didn't like Jason's performance as uh George, I'd, everybody became obnoxious where they were just adorably like unlikable before <laughs> and they were not hmm. that, well, in my opinion. You talk in your so book. So that's a very, you, thank you so much for that amazing question. It's an amazing that, question, that but. Back to what you said, that like performance is everything. Performance is everything. And the performances were lacking because quite frankly, I think Larry David wasn't there. Oh, in those later years. So it's hard to hit the right note. You know? Well, you talk a lot about Buffalo Bill as being an example of the first show with a, show with an anti-hero. But then, but there were those of us, if, once you understood this is what they're doing, like you, you were in, you know what I mean? And then there were so many shows that followed, like even Will and Grace, for example, I don't think any of the four of them are, you know, fantastic people, but, at, you know, as performers in, in that in that television show, there's no one ever funnier in the writing. So, like, just take Grace alone or Will alone or Karen or Jack. They're all selfish, right? But the way that it meshed and the way it was written and the way that they could just really get in there and go over the top, 
that's what made it glorious. Well, I think no, I think the show was terrific, and I think the best way to explain what I'm what I'm trying to say yeah. is Happy Days. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first year and a half, adorable, sweet little show, and then they decided that Fonzie would be the center. I know I love Fonzie too, but it became a completely different show because it was no longer filmed in. Um, without an audience, then they brought the audiences, and then the actors, something happens to actors, they start interacting with the the audience instead of playing to the camera. So I have a question for you. you know when we saying? interviewed Tony Dow, he said, "Oh, what a wonderful human being! One of the Absolutely. nicest people we ever had." Oh, he, and really, it was only a couple of months before he passed. What and a this sweetheart. is a question for Eric because yes. Tony said, that, "You know, you're working with the name of the show is Leave It to Beaver. It's Jer- Jerry has his own show. He's a little boy." So the the producers and the writers said to the Joe Connolly and Bob Mosier, like, and I think Leave It to Beaver's genius because of the nuance. But they they said to the kids, "Don't watch. Mm-hmm. You're going to become to you're going to be you're going to start playing a version of what you saw rather than." Right. So are you able to really say to little kids, especially when that when it says and Jerry Mathers as the Beaver? How do you tell that kid not to watch? He he's going to see it, and how were you t- were you told? Don't watch. We just want you to be yourselves. And does that well, change? They never, the said, perf- they never said don't watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, we had watch parties and everything else. Mm-hmm. I, I chose um, after the first year that I didn't need to see it. You know, back then, the only time to watch it was live right. or watch it over the summer in mm-hmm. repeats. repeats. So I would usually watch them sometimes in the repeat time or like at the end of the year, I would watch them when we were not in production. So it was just a choice that I just felt that I didn't need to see what was going on. The other part of the fame and all that other stuff, that is not, that's irrelevant to, irrelevant to the whole thing. It was just a matter of whether I wanted to learn something by watching myself on mm. TV. And there was nothing for me to learn on a, on a weekly basis to see what I what that show ended up looking like. Right, because you were so busy. I already knew anyway. what was going on. But I just wonder if like what, what Herbie's saying is you actually start playing a caricature of what you started out playing. Well, I think that, look, it's so tough yeah. to, to, do the, to do a show and then after many years still have that initial wonderful energy that you have. I felt that our show after the first five years did a little bit of a jumping of the shark. Um, I, I, again, How could it not? How could any show well, not? Well, Richard right? left. And if the show is about the writer and the author and the the, the creator and the original, uh, and well, didn't the there, cinematography even change? We it was changed. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that the hair, the makeup, everything they laxed a little bit here and there. Maybe we were complaining about the hair. We didn't want to get those kind of haircuts anymore. So they acquiesced. They didn't want to bother. So those things can happen along the way. Uh, the the writers were on to you know, different shows that Lorimar was doing at the time and the director. So it's tough to keep a show at, like you were saying about Seinfeld. It's tough to keep a show going. So. What do they do? They almost become caricatures of, of what they were. And I'm not saying our show went in that direction, but there was times like, you know, we got older. So what did they do? They cast a Aunt Rose with the two kids in the eighth season to try to bring some young energy back onto the show. Did they need to do that? No, but that's what they chose to do. What I always appreciated about executives in the early days of television, you were there when Grant Tinker was the head of entertainment, is that 
there was more gut in programming. Grant Tinker, uh, for example, uh, Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere were not successful at the beginning, but he had the forethought to let them grow and develop and find their audience and would leave them on two, three, four years. And they did that with Seinfeld, too. The guy that really championed Seinfeld was that late night guy named Rick. What was the guy's name? He passed away recently. Rick, you know, he was the head of late night. With the, anyway, he, he was sort of the champion of Seinfeld, and they just sat with it. and It wasn't doing well, and they just, uh, they, but, but somebody had the instinct and the guts to stick on a show for two or three years. They don't do that anymore. Well, they just, if I it guess. tanks after three episodes, you're out. Well, you do that with music again. They used to give guys three albums to try to figure out what yeah. they were doing. We don't do that either. We don't do anything that allows an artist to figure out their 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 path we just say okay what do you got to show for it and next uh so there's no time to develop and that's that's it's it's something that the audience is losing out on i agree yeah unless they make their own show and put it up on the youtube and that's what a lot of people are doing successfully all right what else do we need to know we've got herbie's book and read the title of this tome herbie Retroactive television, an in-depth perspective of classic TV social circuitry. It's not a history of classic television. It's a it's a perspective on the positive influence that class some classic TV shows have had on society. I, I, I said it before, nobody knows more about classic television. Just having a conversation with you is so much fun. There are great photographs in here. There are, and great uh, American television history. And it will make you both sad, like, where the hell have we gone? And second of all, it will just uh, describe the best years, the halcyon years, the 60s and 70s. And, and we're going to be giving away a book if you want to go to mediapathpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter. We're going to be giving away a book signed by Herbie. And it could be your very own. All right, Eric, is there anything we should know about you or where to find you online? No. <laughs> <laughs> You can find him. No, Eric. I'm just happy to be here with you guys today. Eric's going to be right here on our podcast until he drives away. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediapathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. You can write to us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us at family gatherings at the Wendy's drive-thru or on social media. You can sign up for the Media Path Post at Media Path Podcast. We just named our newsletter. Yeah. At MediaPathPodcast.com. It, it enters your box, your inbox once a week, just once a week. It is full of photos, quizzes, fun, and links to the newest episode and to everything we've been talking about on the show. We want to thank our guests, Herbie J. Pilato and Eric Scott. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Plank are here with Fritz Coleman and Eric Scott and Herbie J. Pilato. Be well and wise and we will see you along the media path. Herbie brought us pies. From where, Herbie? From where? Holly's Pies. Holly's my, my pies. favorite ever. Shout out.